So this is Luke 16. Almighty God, we thank you that we are here today to study your word and to really dig into to the life of Christ when he walked. May your spirit just unfold these scriptures to us to glorify you. Amen. So, we have been following Jesus to the cross, okay? And Luke is recording different aspects and events of Jesus as he heads toward Jerusalem. He has been in this one area now since chapter 14. This is still the Sabbath day that started in chapter 14. And it will go through till the first 10 verses next week, and then he picks up his journey again and he heads out. So this is in a, like a 24-hour period that Luke is compiling these stories for us to know. And it's interesting because it's dealing pretty much a lot with those Pharisees that are right there. Um, these Pharisees that are hypocrites, um, they were, had a love for money, mastered by all that. And we talked about two different kingdoms. It was just the kingdom of Satan that was here. And into the darkness, there came a great light. And here comes Jesus breaking open with new teachings, with the redemption of man and a hope and, um, and truth um, to redeem a people for himself. So that is the kingdom of God that is now here too. And there are two opposing kingdoms. We need to keep that in mind Last week we talked about money, not in the sense of money, 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 but in the sense of, you know, I want my inheritance and I want it now, and I've got this money to buy friends with and do all this stuff, and then the older son, he's all mad too because he wants, you know, he's been working and his inheritance, and, and so it was a greed thing, a materialistic thing. So on the same, on the heels of that, chapter 16 continues on with that. The Pharisees um, were very hypocritical. They taught the moral law, and the scribes interpreted the spiritual life for the people, but their master was material gain. And Jesus is going to bring this right out into the open as he addresses his disciples. And verse 16 starts with verse 1. Uh, chapter 16, he also said to his disciples, and all the Pharisees are around too, and all the people are around too, but he looks to his disciples and he starts to tell them the story of this rich man. Now before we get into that, I want to pull out some vocabulary for you. Keeping in mind the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, there's two different sets of motives the kingdom of Satan's motives, if you live in that kingdom, it's pretty much self-survival, self-gain, me, I, I, I. The kingdom of God comes on the scene, and he's saying, no, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. It's all about loving others. So we have those two different motives, and the motive is going to drive what we do. Remember, it's always a thought. A thought, a feeling, a behavior comes up here. So if our motive is to get all we can out of this world, then our method to go through life is going to be all about me. If our motive is to serve God and he loved others, then our method is going to be, what can I do for these other people? A long time ago, actually it was a long time ago, 
when I went to training to become a community Bible study teacher many moons ago in the 80s. One of the most profound things I remember learning, because I was young, learning was this. You can walk into a room and you can say, here I am. Or you can walk into a room and say, ah, there you are. And as a servant of God, we walk into a room and say, here you are. What can I do for you? So, the Pharisees are sons of this generation. When we get to that term, Jesus had in mind pretty much the Pharisees. They're sons of this generation. People who live in the kingdom of Satan. People who have motives and methods to get along in that mindset. Being clever or being shrewd is neither good nor bad. There's nothing good or bad about being clever and shrewd. I am a very shrewd person. I know how to manipulate. I know how to get things done. I know how to, you know, think through something and get it done. It's a gift that, you know, it's a talent, whatever you want. You can call it whatever. But it's what I do with that shrewdness. And that cleverness is that makes it good or evil. Okay, so shrewd is just kind of seeing something and, and looking ahead and problem solving and, and um, you know, getting, getting what you want done to get done. And it has a negative connotation, but it's a way to just be clever, all right? So clever is neither good nor evil. It's the motive and the methods that are good or evil. Money is not immoral. Money is not evil. Okay? Dollar bill isn't like, oh, it's it's toxic, don't touch it. It's not that. It's the use of money that is good or evil. So again, money's not evil. That's just an unthinking, just, you know, it's an element of this world. Um, But it's how we use it that can be for good or for evil. When we get to the term unrighteous wealth, unrighteous wealth is referring to the elements of a fallen society that that belongs to this world. Elements of wealth would be money. Elements of wealth would be possession. Elements of wealth might be a good career. Things that belong to this world that we don't take to the afterworld. Righteous wealth would be the, the, the elements that we use to store up things in heaven. So righteous wealth would be, hey, our nine lists of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That is wealth that a person has. If that person has a lot of self-control, that is a wealth. And if they're going to use it um, to further God's kingdom, all those things you use to further God's kingdom. That's righteous wealth. So unrighteous wealth is not something that is ill-gained. It can be, but it's mostly talking about things of this world. It's unright. It's not holy. It's, it's not sacred, okay? So those are some terms I want to get out of the way here. So let's go ahead and look at the first seven verses here. And this is pretty much looking at the kingdom of Satan. There was a certain, I like the King James, they use the word certain here. There was a certain rich man who had a manager. So this guy's pretty rich. He doesn't own his business, 
but he's made himself wealthy. And charges were brought against him that this man was wasting possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in your accounts of your management and you can no longer be a manager. Now I want you to count the I's and the me's in this again. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I have decided to do what, is, what to do. So that I am removed. When I'm removed from my management, people may receive me into their houses. That's very self-centered. You don't see any cons- consult with God and, or even anybody on that. That's just me. What am I going to do? the cleverness that he's using to figure out and the problem solving on this. So he figures something out. And so he says in verse four, so in verse five, so assuming his master's debtors, he call, he summons his master's debtors one by one. He asks them, how much do you owe? Okay, we'll just take that and cut it in half or take that and cut it in, you know, two thirds or whatever. And just cut it and just write it off and, and, pay me. Oh, that's so nice. It's like when you get your student loan forgiven, right? This is really nice. So here you are. He's cleverly winning friendships. Boy, that manager, he, I remember when he really helped me. So when he's on the outs and he doesn't have anything, he can go back to these people. You owe me. There are strings attached to all this, isn't it? And so he was making friends this way. Um, in verse So this generation that this manager was functioning in is influenced by Satan. Satan's the king of this world. So it's all self-centered. Now, when I say things are influenced by Satan, I I don't mean they're Satanists, they worship Satan to do rituals. Certainly there's plenty of that going on out here. But Satan is very subtle, and Satan mostly likes to work undercover without being known. So if he can get in there and lie to you, deceive you, disappoint you, discourage you, and you don't know where it's coming from. He likes that kind of tactic better. He is getting bolder in this day and age. Look at the media that's out there, Um, and it's different times we live in. Um, So this is very self-centered. He figured this out. This generation also is limited. When this is over here, it's over here. Or when someone dies, it's done. Okay, so it's a limited um, generation here. The cleverness that happens with this generation is for the here and the now. This manager was putting up things for his life here. Okay, these people take care of me. Maybe I can rent the back room from them really cheap because I gave them that good deal before, you know. So, but when this world, this life ends for him, that's it. None of that stuff's going to have any influence positively in the afterlife. It's limited. It's not for the future. Verse 8, the master who hired the manager and then fired him commended the dishonest man for his shrewdness. Now notice it wasn't saying Jesus is commending him for this. That Don't think that. His manager, who is also in the world commended him. Wow. And that guy probably had so much money, it didn't matter if he didn't get all his oil or all his wheat or whatever. You know, he had plenty. So he was impressed by this shrewdness of this guy. 
For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. We, believers in Jesus Christ, would look at that and say, well, that was kind of him to do, but what is the motive behind all that? You know, that, there's strings attached to that. There, he's going to come back and he's going to, you know, there's a, something going on there. Um, do you see the difference with this, what's going on? Okay. And so the servant's master commended him. Probably all those Pharisees that were standing around listening to Jesus, teaching this to his disciples, thought it was a really good idea too. That guy was really smart. You know, he, he, he did well for himself. They were commending him. But it wasn't Jesus who was saying that this shrewdness was good. We have to read the, the passage carefully. So verse 9 gives us what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus says to his disciples, and I tell you, disciples, I'm speaking to you who live in the kingdom of God, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Okay, we already defined unrighteous wealth is anything down here, money, possessions, anything pretty much down here, career, whatever. And he's saying to them, use your money, use your uh, possessions to benefit other people and that way when you get to heaven they will welcome you there because you were kind you invested in other people spend your resources spreading the gospel investing in other Christians and they will joyfully welcome you into heaven so this is what Jesus is telling them to do that use your things down here your acquired wealth your possessions, um, to benefit others. And, if they're, and especially to, to benefit other believers, because it says when you get to heaven, they'll be up there rejoicing for it. You know, spend your money, I don't know, the Gideons and buying Bibles for kids that don't have them. You know, wheels on meals and with the sharing the gospel, doing, we're investing in those kinds of things. We're using this the means of that to create and benefit other believers and other Christians who will rejoice when we all get to heaven. So these are principles on fidelity or principles on our faithfulness or our obligations and our duties. He's looking to his disciples and saying, this is what we do with our stuff. These are our duties and obligations. He goes on in verse 10 teaching. One who is faithful in a little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. In a very, um, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in the much, in faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? It is not saying, I was given this little job to do, and I was faithful with it. Oh, goody, 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 I'm going to get more stuff to be faithful with too. It's not saying that. 
It's not a climbing up. It's not an increase in our um, stewardship or, or ability to handle more stuff. It's rather the reverse of that. It's actually saying those who are faithful in the bigger picture, those who serve God, those who have a heart after Christ and his kingdom and a yielding and a humbling to serve him, will do well with the little things. Do you see that? And if those people who aren't good with the bigger picture don't have their mind on the kingdom of God, but have their mind and motives on promoting self, they're not going to do, little with, they're not going to do well with the little things. So it's actually a reverse of what um, the popular belief is of that is also, is also, is just, we got the bigger one, the bigger bubble, so in there, all the little things that happen in there, that's working. It's like those uh, Venn diagrams, you know? Remember in math, Venn diagrams? No? They still use those, don't they, Barb? Venn diagrams? You got the bigger picture of the kingdom of God, then all these little things are going to be good in, okay? It's not little good things here and then it's going to grow. Big picture, we're not good, then, yeah, everything that happens inside there is going to be bad because it's going to be me-centered, motivated, self-centeredness at the expense of other people. It, it pretty much sums up Matthew 6:33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. We've got to have our mindset, our motive in the right place to serve God, and that the method of the things we do will follow. It's the spiritual world um, has the over-compassing control over the material world. It's also like the poor widow, and we're going to get to her in chapter 21, the poor widow gave all she had, right? So we can't use the excuse of, well... If I, had more, if I had more money, then I would give out of my abundance and I would serve this whatever. Jesus is saying the bigger picture is everything we have belongs to him anyways, right? Verse 13 is a key word in there is serve. Who we serve is going to affect our motives and our method. No servant, Jesus says, can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees loved money because they would spend it on themselves. Jesus loved people. So, a love of self or a love for God? If we love God, then we're going to love others. The bigger picture, we love God so in that Venn diagram circle, we're going to love people. Our motives and our methods need to benefit other people. This is what Jesus was teaching his disciples and teaching us, his disciples, that are sitting in this room today. The Pharisees don't like this. They didn't like very much of what Jesus said. So they interrupt him in verse 14. Because the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. <laughs> it is, they held him in contempt. 
<laughs> they, they had an outward display of disdain for him. You can just see them over there. <laughs> Ridiculed. It's a turning up their nose. It's a word. It's an animal word. It's a facial expression. It's a sneering. It's like, <laughs> he doesn't know what he's talking about. Don't listen to him. Do you see the attitude? Do you see the arrogance? It's a turning up. The word actually means a turning up of the nose. So, Jesus responds in verse 15. You are those, you guys are those who I'm talking about, who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your heart. So they're saying, that's a bunch of foolishness. No one uses their money like that. We, you know, blah, 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 blah. And God, he nails them. He calls them out for their motives because they were motivated by greed. They, they make their decisions because they are motivated by greed and self-centeredness. They live by the opinions of men because they want to feel good about ourselves. You know, the world is great about validating all the things that are against God and glorifying those things. And the kingdom of Satan is just loves to, you know, reinforce the negative stuff in the world. The kingdom of God, though, lives keeping God in view and acts according to that. So the world sees these Pharisees very successful. The world will see accumulation of wealth, even wisdom, the world wisdom. There's two kinds of wisdoms, you know, in James. Wisdom that's from above, which is good, and wisdom from below, which is demonic wisdom same word used so where you get your resource from of wisdom is matter too and that's going to be the kingdom of god or the kingdom of satan so god knows their hearts and jesus says your attitude what does god think of what they're doing he says but god knows your heart for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. <laughs> Jesus is just so cool. So we, the, they turned up their noses at him. And the last part of verse 15 talks about God's attitude towards them is that they're a stench in his nostrils. In other words, an abomination means a stench in, a, in one's nostrils. It's just, oh, it's just, ooh, it's an abomination. So they're all like with their noses in the air, and Jesus is walking around like this, <laughs> plugging his nose at them. <laughs> it's just very creative, you know, got the whole nose thing in the same verse. Um, so he, he, always, um, he always comes out on top. What does he really think about that. What kind of abomination is it? Psalm 49, verses 16 to 20 says this. Do not, be not, sorry, be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go down to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. 
can't take it with you. Enjoy it while you got it here because that's it. And some people live life like that. Isn't that sad? I'm going to live it up because I know there's nothing after this. They're false. They're not informed well, but that's their attitude toward it. And that is an abomination to God. Jesus also talks to them about the law because they are so prideful that they keep the law and yet they have been fudging and chipping away at it and manipulating and using their cleverness to go ahead and for their own means and gains. He uses this time to address them on this, the sovereignty of God, the government of God. In verse 16, he goes on to say, the law and the prophets were up until John, John the Baptist, and then John came, and since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached And everyone forces his way into it. Their love for money, the Pharisees, their love for money loosened their attitude toward the law. They were loosey-goosey about it. Well, I really need, you know, this or that. I'm going to skim off the top or I'm going to do this or I'm going to do whatever they do or twist something around. And they've just chipped away at the law of God And he calls them out for that. That phrase that says everyone um, forces his way into it is saying that every person enters violently into the kingdom of God. Now, that means that when we become a believer in Jesus Christ, he takes us from the dominion of darkness, and he puts us into the sunny loves. That's a done deal. We're in his kingdom. We're saved. We're in eternity. But then we work out our salvation, and the working out of our salvation is a dying to self, a violently killing self, killing our own denial, self-denial. That's the struggle that is there in the sinful human soul. It needs to crush pride, crush self-will, crush greed, crush all the flesh, put off the flesh, and put on the righteousness of God. That is the force that he's talking about to really work out our salvation and have the evidence that we are safe. For true believers, we exercise that daily. And it is a violent thing. It's a hard thing to just say, Molly, don't listen to yourself. You know you need to do this, right? That's what that phrase is talking about. It's a struggle for us to put off the flesh. The Holy Spirit helps us, but man, it's our our choice. Are we going to do it today or not? I mean, if we don't, man, Jesus turns up the washing machine on it and, you know, gets it until we do. We have to come to total surrender is what verse 16 is talking about. Verse 17. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot, or iota, I like that word, of the law to become void. So they were chipping away, loosey-goosey, with the whole thing about money. And God's saying, Jesus is saying to them, no, the word of God is divinely inspired it is permanent. Nothing's going to change it. Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Jesus is saying, Do you think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the, of the least of these commandments, that's what they were doing, they were relaxing the commandments and teaches it to others, boom, double whammy, do, to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. One of the laws that they were really messing around with and loosening it up was their marriage, divorce. And he calls them out in that in verse 18. They got to the point where, you know, well, my gosh, my wife, I just really don't like her anymore. She just puts too much salt in the soup. I just, I can't handle it. Or she's really let herself go, or I don't know. I'm tired of her. But over there, I really, she's really cute. So what do they do? They can't commit adultery. That would be, that's, whoa, we're not going to do that. So they loosen their laws on divorce. And they start, well, I'll divorce this one, and I'll marry that one, and then I'm not committing adultery. You see what they're doing here? This is what they were doing with the law, and Jesus called them out on this, relaxing the law. We have a lot of that going on in the church today, a lot of relaxing the law. And look at where we're at, because the church has been silenced, For so long, I'm not getting political, I'm getting realistic here. We have been so quiet because we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or it's none of my business. But if the world doesn't know, if generations that come up don't understand what the truth is, what God really has to say about gender identity and confusion and transgenderism and homosexuality and adultery and all that stuff... Where are they going to hear it from? Because in the schools and everything else, they're wide open with this stuff. I don't know. Does anybody familiar with Epoch Times? Wonderful. Wonderful. I was watching something last night. Two boys from Canada, two brothers, Nick and his brother Anderson, I think, two boys, high school kids, got arrested in Canada for preaching the gospel. To listen, watch that interview. Um, uh, I call him Jean Jawan. I don't know his name. It's a Canadian guy. Uh, and it was so encouraging and refreshing to see these two young men standing for the truth and against the gender idea. They had been homeschooled up through seventh grade, I think, and then went into the public school. And he says, it's not, this one young man said, it's not the curriculum. That's bad. It's the teachers that are most appalling that shove it in their face and give them a hard time. I mean, it was very informative to us, but but I just, we, but these boys were raised to stand bold and to stand against this stuff. And when they, the one young man um, was preaching the gospel and standing against the whole gender ideology stuff and everything, and the, you know, the, the opposition was there, you know who they are, the opposition was there with their violence and hating and attacking him and everything, and his student, fellow students watched this and saw that this young man stood his ground and didn't complain and just kept talking about the gospel, and they 
handcuffed him and took him away. It was that influenced by his fellow students that said, wow, if he's going to stand for that and get beat up and mocked, that there must be something to what he believes in. This is the world we've come to, you guys. So we, we cannot, like it said in Matthew, relax the laws of God. We can't. Our motives and our methods, our motives affect our methods and our behaviors. If our motives are more for self-preservation and Boy, I don't want to lose my job. I can't really say anything. I mean, this, these boys, both their parents lost their jobs because they didn't put up with the gender ideology stuff. They were school teachers or something. I don't know, but they got fired. Um, if we are in a self-preservation mode, the me, then that motive, our methods are going to be, well, I'm just going to keep my mouth quiet and go along with it. But if our motive is to serve God and promote his kingdom, then the method is all that. He's got our back. God has got our back. Jesus goes on and tells them another story. He's letting them basically know that our motives are not always apparent, but they have significant outcomes. Some people might not know our motives in life. But the outcomes from this present life, what we do in this present life, affects eternity. Now, the story isn't literally true. I don't want you guys to get caught up on, oh, we can talk to each other. No, we, we can't talk. There's nothing in Scripture that supports the fact that those in, he- those in hell can see what's going on in heaven. This is Jesus using an illustration to get a point across, okay? Okay. Um, Jesus does refer to the poor man by a name, Lazarus, which is very interesting. Lazarus means, quote, whom God has helped. And certainly, we cannot get into heaven without the help of God, okay? So he's got two men that he's referring to here in this story. In verse 19, we've got the rich man who was just had everything. Very successful, he was successful. The world would see, yeah, what? I, I want to be like that. You know, he was honored, whatever. That was the role model everybody wants to have what this guy had and be like that. And then in verse 20, it goes on to describe Lazarus, who was a poor beggar that he desired. It didn't say he got the crumbs. It said he desired the crumbs from the table. Physical anguish, open sores, The dogs were kinder to him than this rich man, who I believe probably didn't even know he was there. He was outside the gate. He was at the gate. Lazarus, the rich man didn't know his name. Jesus is calling him his name. This rich man turned up his nose probably at Lazarus at the gate. Didn't know him. Contrast, rich man. Rich man, wealthy. Lazarus, poor. Rich man, lots of food, no food. Rich man, satisfied, Lazarus suffered. Rich man was honored, Lazarus was humiliated. Rich man was well known, Lazarus was unknown. But who does Jesus recognize? Lazarus, he named him. So there they are, two different worlds, kingdom of God, 
kingdom of Satan, whatever. And what this rich man did with his wealth, with his unrighteous wealth, was only to for only for himself. He didn't invest in others to further the kingdom of God. He didn't reach out to others because his heart wasn't there. He didn't live like that. Okay, they both die. Even the plains field here, doesn't it? They both die. Lazarus probably was not buried. He was probably carried off by the town scavenger because they found him on the side of the road with other, you know, just sickly people that didn't have any family or anybody to take care of them. And he, the scavenger took whatever he had, whatever, and he would throw him into the fire, the continuously burning fire that all the trash would burn on and everything outside the time, town. That's where Lazarus went. It says that he was carried up by the angels in the story. But Lazarus was not buried. The rich man, oh, he probably had a wonderful funeral, didn't he? Well attended, very nice, had it paid for ahead of time. Um, but the story doesn't end there with them dying. Jesus continues that after death conditions, Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham. That was a Jewish phrase um, to identify a place where um, they would go in a, in, in a resting, you know, this is before the cross. Um, so they would be in the bosom, a place where they would enjoy peace, um, you know, in heaven. Some people place it under the altar in Revelation. We know the saints that have died are under that altar waiting. Um, there's a lot to that. We don't need to get into it. But the point is, when Lazarus died, he was taken care of, a peace of, and rest in heaven after his death. The rich man goes to Hades, place of torment. And between the two, a great chasm, steep cliffs, a great gap, causing a division. And there's no getting over it. In other words, Jesus is saying, once you're there, you're there. And once you're there, you're there. A point of the story. The results of our motives and methods of using our unrighteous wealth here, what we do with our money, what we do with the things, because it's all God's things that God has given us, our talents, our possessions, whatever it is, what we do with those things here are going to have an effect beyond this life. Um, it's going to have an effect here, but it's going to have a powerful effect in heaven also. If a life here is not one that is morally considered, then it's not going to be any, it's going to be a, a bad experience on the other side. I'm just going to end because you can kind of read the rest of it in verse 27 to 31. Because the rich man is now, you know, some of us say, oh, he was, he kind of had a change of heart. Again, this isn't a literal thing here. I think someone's in heaven, someone gets, if someone ends up in Hades, um, they're not going to have a dialogue like this, they're going to be tormented and won't even be able to think past themselves. This is just for the story. Um, I think there's going to be such hate and anguish, it's just going to continue to increase in heaven, they're not going to think of anybody else. But in the story that Jesus is telling, he's basically saying that Go and tell my brothers, you know, about all of this stuff. They need to know so they don't come down here. And Jesus says to them, 
in verse 31. If they do not hear Moses, if they did not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should raise from the dead. In other words, unbelief is a moral issue. It's not an intellectual issue. No amount of evidence is going to move unbelief to a belief in faith. There's nothing. It is going to be calling an opening of the Holy Spirit, a a revelation of Scripture. Um, And maybe we've all experienced it where, you know, you can read this and it doesn't make sense, and then one day God calls your heart and you realize something, and then it's like, whoa, this has opened up. And yet we've read it before. So why did Jesus tell this story too? Well, a couple reasons. He wanted to address the whole money issue and the greed and what the disciples need to do, where they're going to find their wealth, their treasures in heaven. But he also named this guy Lazarus. It's not in our book of Luke. But now after this Sabbath day, he starts moving toward Jerusalem and he gets to the area in John 11 where he raises Lazarus from the dead. That's coming So this same group of Pharisees that heard Jesus tell this story, when they're there at Mary and Martha's hanging out, and this happens to Lazarus, that's going to be a real eye-opening thing for them. Many of them turned with hatred, and it got deeper, and they just wanted to kill them. But many of them... I would hope, would think, look back on this and say, yeah, Lazarus, he talked about somebody named Lazarus. Coincidental? Not really with Jesus. Everything has a point. So the last thing I want to close with is this. Two kingdoms, different motives and methods. Will other people be able to know which kingdom we live in? Will it be apparent to people who cross our paths, if we are a believer in Jesus Christ and we have a heart for that, or if we're self-centered and of the world and it's kind of a me-first thing. I, I believe people can, can know that if they get to know it, but can they, how close do they have to get to us before they can see that? Philippians 2, 5 to 7, 11. Jesus is our role model in this. Have this mind among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born of the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He gave it all. He gave it all. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He gave a big everything and look what he got on the other side of heaven. That's our role model. Almighty God, these are hard things, easy kind of understand, but so hard to apply. We just 
want to serve you. We want to, and we ask that you would accept our forgiveness in our repentance when we have not done that. It's, but we strive. Give us a desire to want to do it more. Give us a desire to stand up in love for your truth, not to relax on these things, but give us a love for you that will spur us on um, to serve you. And we look forward to your coming. Come soon, Lord Jesus, in the name of Christ. Amen.